Hey, everybody, welcome to episode three of Waking Up to Narcissism. And I am going to just keep talking as you wouldn't even know it, but I'm on about take nine or 10 of the opening because I have stumbled over words. I've used my virtual couch podcast opening. I've said completely nonsensical things, and I realize I'm about to do that right now. So let's get on to the show. Yes, music is still coming soon. I talked again with the composer, and he actually loved the fact that I called him a composer, but it's it's coming soon. So I'll just leave that there. But please continue to send your emails. You can head over to tonyoverbay.com and go through the contact form there. And they go directly to me. And I've been putting together a Google document of all of the emails because there have been an incredible amount of emails of support of people that feel heard and seen for maybe the first time and more examples of gaslighting. And so I'll cover so many of those as we move forward. And I I know I'm saying that I want to get to a question and answer as I get more of the questions that come in. But here's why I wanted to get on and record today in particular. One is I have an amazing email that I'm going to read and the the person brings up something that I think would be helpful at this stage in aware for your awareness as a lot of you are starting to truly wake up to narcissism, to what it looks like, what it is if you're in a relationship there. But I'll talk about that. But I think now for two consecutive episodes, I have alluded to the narcissistic apology, and then I have not actually talked about it and uh, had a thought right here in the moment. Here's what, a, here's what it would look like if I was providing you with a narcissistic apology. It would look something like this. And I'm a horrible actor. And as a therapist, I'm not a big fan of role plays. So I'm already laughing in my head of how this is probably going to sound. But if I were the narcissist and someone kept sending me emails saying, hey, you mentioned you were going to talk about the narcissistic apology, but you haven't done so. Here's what it would look like. Uh, okay, fine. I guess, uh, I guess I, I guess I'll talk about it. Um, but, and I guess I owe you an apology that I haven't covered it. So I, I guess I'm sorry. But honestly, um, I think it's kind of silly that you're asking me for an apology, but if that's what you need to make you feel better, I mean, I guess I'm sorry that you've taken what I've said the way that you have. But honestly, if I think about it, I, I think it's kind of silly. And so I can't believe you're making me apologize because, but, and now that I think about it, I mean, uh, it, is that what you really want? I mean, does that make you happy or there you go? You got me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for all these things, but, um, but I, have you looked at your role in it? I mean, you, you keep emailing me and you're kind of hounding me on this. So, I mean, if anything, I kind of almost feel like maybe you could apologize to me as well. So, uh, end scene. Uh, boy, what a horrible thing if somebody just walked into the room and they would say, man, that guy's a jerk. But the concept of the narcissistic apology is fascinating. And I have received probably three or four emails where people talk about that they could count on one hand when the narcissist that they interact with in their life has truly apologized. And I even qualify that word truly. And I can honestly, and part of me could not wait to tell these stories, but I remember the very person where I just zeroed in and just, I was going to wait for that apology. And the person just gave me that deer in the headlights. Look, I'm thinking about it right now. And I, it was almost this stare off or this battle of wills and, and he won. And I think about that to this day. I mean, his wife was right there and she's saying, I don't know if he's ever apologized for, and there were several things that were not nice things. And so I said, Hey, is that true? And he just kind of looked at me and he said, well, um, I don't really feel like she's ever taken ownership of her part of it. And I said, okay, well, we'll get there. Let's put a pin in that. But have you truly never apologized for this behavior that I think set up here on its own? 
is definitely something that one would apologize for. And he just dead stared me. And it was just the silence in the room. I felt like it was minutes had gone on. And I, to this day, regret the fact that I finally just moved on. And I realized in hindsight that, uh, and this was a little, it was early in my therapy career when I wasn't exactly as aware now about narcissism and what that looks like. And I just remember thinking, man, I can get this person to apologize. And they never did. And I have literally thought of times of going back and bringing this person in. It's been 15 years or so. And just saying, we're doing it. We're having a a staring contest. We're having an apology off, whatever we want to call it. But I want you to apologize. But then even as I say that, I realize that what we're talking about is when the person truly doesn't feel this deep sense of regret or remorse, or, or guilt of any time, of any kind. If there, if any guilt, it's the fact that they were caught and now you, you got them cornered into a point where they, they panic. I mean, they're in this just reactionary. It's almost as if it's a fight or flight mode. And so the narcissistic apology is how I, I acted it out a little while ago that it's something that the person doesn't feel. They don't feel that they truly did anything wrong. So it's basically saying to them, I want you to read this script for me and then I'll feel better. That's exactly what they think that you are asking for. It's okay, fine. Tell me what to say. Tell me what to do. I'll, I'll say whatever it is you want me to say. You can check your little box and then we, can we get back to this being more about me? So to summarize that narcissistic apology, it in essence is okay, fine. I guess I owe you an apology. Already, you can feel the energy. It's not there. There isn't this true sense of curiosity or empathy or a desire to understand what your experience is. It's basically saying, fine, look what you're making me do. To The the narcissist is saying, "I, I guess I have to fix everything. Not, oh my gosh, tell me more about how you feel. I, I had no idea that's how you were feeling. Or you're right, I hurt you even if I didn't mean to. But now that I think about it or I feel that, I am so sorry for what I have done. There's none of that. It really is, okay, fine. I guess I'm sorry. There, are you happy? And then in doing so, that will often amp up the narcissist even more to even feel more annoyed because in essence, you are telling them, well, not in essence, you are telling them they are wrong and they will defend that position of being wrong to the death. They will die on that hill. And I have people that are going through divorce or already divorced from a narcissist and the narcissist will cut off relationship with their adult children and even say, what am I supposed to do? They're being mean to me. And think about that. That sounds like a a 10-year-old who is just saying, you know what? If you're not going to play with me the way that I want to with my rules, then I'm going to take my ball and I'm going to go somewhere else where people will like me. And it's that same, that same concept of, fine, I guess I'll apologize, but you're making me do this. And the fact that you're making me do this means that you're actually the one that has the problem. It's not me, it's you. And so when people will often sit in my office and say, I just want him to apologize. I just want him to tell me that he's sorry. If he really had felt sorry, he would have apologized and he or she, depending on the narcissist, would have apologized long ago. And sometimes I I realize that, and let me see if I can explain this too, because this is something I used to say things in therapy where I would say, because what what a healthy relationship would look like would be if then when you express yourself, then he would say, oh my gosh, I've never thought of it that way. And I, I, you're right. I'm so sorry. 
But then it started dawning on me that we wouldn't even be close to this situation where the person is in my office just saying, I wish he would apologize. He never apologizes. I can count the number of times he's apologized on one hand. We wouldn't be talking about that if it was a healthy relationship. And there was real uh, empathy where the person knows. I mean, I know, I know when I've said things that have um, just been impulsive or have just been uh, maybe not the best timing. And when I do, I feel it. I feel it in my bones and I want desperately to apologize to make things better. So the tell me what I'm supposed to say vibe is something also that I really wanted to talk about. And I'll I'll give you an example. I had a couple in my office and I'm going to go with the narcissist in this scenario was the male and the wife was frustrated and the husband wanted to just let me know all of the ways that the wife didn't appreciate him. But the wife was the one that was in, basically doing everything around the house to keep the kids uh, doing the homework, um, getting them to bed, everything. And all she really felt like was that it was much easier to parent when he wasn't there because when he was there, then he disrupted the routine and then he actually made things more about him. And he then also put his uh, wife down in front of the kids because he felt attacked. And so we had a session where then he said, and and now you can see where we're coming from with this almost apology vibe, where he just said, okay, fine, you know, tell me what I'm supposed to do. And, And I know where this one's heading. So she'd expressed that, well, I would like more help when you come home. You, you, in essence, just sit on the couch, you watch TV until dinner's ready, and then you you don't help a lot with the nighttime routine. So he's saying, okay, if that's what you want, no problem, I can do that. And she went on to let me know that his version of help was for a night or two, he did go upstairs and he tried to engage, but even in doing so, he just got mad at the kids because... They were excited that dad was actually participating and they wanted him to read stories. They wanted him to participate more. But then he literally says to them, okay, you guys are going to get me in trouble with your mom. So what does that do? Paints mom as the bad guy. There's not a united front in parenting in that situation. And so he got more frustrated because he, number one, had to disrupt his routine. But number two, now all of a sudden he felt like the kids are the ones that are going to get him in trouble. And so he put that on them, which then made that nighttime routine even worse. And so after two or three days of doing that, then he just slowly slipped back into his old pattern. And when she would say, hey, are you going to help tonight? Then he would literally just yell up the stairs. You guys better get ready or else, you know, mom's going to get mad. And so it can be so difficult when someone truly doesn't want to take the time or they don't even have the ability to empathize or to put themselves as best they can in another person's shoes or situation to try and understand what that must be like for them. So in this scenario, it was it was basically a, from the narcissist uh, expression or from the narcissist point of view, he's saying, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. And there is such significance in that. Because if someone is just saying, tell me and, and just give me the checkbox, then there is not going to be change. I call it the shelf life. And so you start to look at, okay, fine, everything gets uh, disrupted, the re- the relationship. Um, let's say in this scenario, the wife finally has enough. She wants to go to counseling. Uh, she's She's pulling back on intimacy. She's doing whatever she can basically to feel heard. And so then he will then say, okay, fine, what do I have to do? Just tell me what I have to do. And oftentimes she'll view that as, okay, he's he's willing, he, he'll go to counseling. He's willing to help out with the kids. But if it truly isn't something that he believes in, or something that he buys into, or something that he even feels is a problem because it isn't a problem to him, then 
then you can tell them what to do and it has this shelf life, typically of, a, I don't know, a week, uh, two weeks maybe. And then if he has now checked the box for a week or two and then she still wants to go to therapy because we want to talk about these underlying issues or these um, wounds from the past, well, at that point, he's even more frustrated because he did the things that she asked him to for a week or so. So there, it, why isn't she happy? And why can't we just go back to the way we were? Because the narcissist felt like everything was fine. So at that core of this narcissistic apology is this, this tell me what to do, this checkbox item. And I could just go on and on about the examples that I've seen in my office with that, where and think about it. The wife often, and again, I'm going with the wife, we're saying the husband's a narcissist. I know it can be either way around, as I talked about in one of my previous episodes. But in the examples that come quickly to mind, in another one, the husband just come across as just so, um, hey, just tell me, just tell me. You just have to, you didn't remind me again that I'm supposed to help out with the kids. And you didn't tell me what I'm supposed to do for the bedtime routine. And that can be so frustrating because it isn't all on her. In essence, at that point, she often feels like she has another kid to parent. Now she's parenting him, trying to get him to help her become a, a united front in parenting. And all that can do is make her feel like this is even more work. And she also sees this negative effect on the kids because now they see dad also getting frustrated. And if you remember from my last episode, I talked a lot about those abandonment and attachment wounds. The unfortunate part here is that a kid is going to come out of childhood feeling like a lot of things are their fault regardless. That's the way the programming works because that's what that uh, that deep abandonment wound is where when you come from self-centered, as every kid does, our goal is to help get them to self-confident. The narcissist never comes out of self-centered mode. And so when you are feeling like everything is about you and you don't have empathy for others, then when, when as a kid in particular, you move forward into adulthood and feeling like, well, everything must be my fault. And so if you now insert a narcissistic parent into that relationship or narcissistic parents who aren't taking ownership or accountability for anything, who are pushing things off on, look what you made me do, or now you're going to get me in trouble with mom. Now you're, you're really sowing some seeds of these abandonment wounds that people will carry forward into adulthood because, again, they're already going to feel like a lot of things were their fault. I don't know if I've talked about this on this podcast or on my virtual couch podcast, but I can work with people now that are into, in their adulthood. They can look back and see that their parents did not have a healthy relationship and that they, they, even, uh, they, they felt like their parents maybe stayed married too long where they felt like, uh, man, I wish uh, they would have divorced sooner so they could have maybe found happiness or people that would make them uh, feel more uh, more happy. And so they know that now sitting on the couch as adults. And oftentimes I will go back and say, hey, take me back into your childhood. And when that divorce happened, did you feel like it was your fault? And and almost uh, unanimously you hear, absolutely I did. And even to this day, I still question, well, if I would have been a better kid, would that have, would that have changed things? So that's the stuff that breaks my heart. So when you see how complex this is, when the when let's just say again in this scenario, the wife asks the husband for help and the husband truly doesn't feel like he should help or that he needs to help or that the way that she wants him to help is absolutely incorrect and there is no empathy there, then in essence, he's just trying to follow these rules or orders in a checkbox style that will get him frustrated and he will express that to the kids and that is going to deepen that abandonment wound and that breaks my heart. It does. So let me get on to this email that I have, and I'm going to read this. I'm going to talk about narcissistic awareness grief. So I got a wonderful email. The person said, hey, Tony, 
an idea I would highly recommend covering sooner than later is that of narcissism awareness grief. Christine Hammond had an episode on her podcast and he said, let me tell you, it's a real thing. And, and he absolutely is. And Christine Hammond is amazing. I've had her on my virtual couch podcast to talk about narcissism and borderline personality disorder. But he goes on to say, as your listeners see, uh, as they listen and see the, their lives and the story shared, the reality that they are in a relationship with a narcissist will hit them like a ton of bricks. And he is so correct. And that is one of the things that, again, breaks my heart. But I also am so grateful for the people that I get to work with individually and to help them understand and start to unravel that this isn't necessary. This isn't them, you know, and and I will tell you one of the, and I'll get back to the email, but one of the most, and I have people in my office right now this week that are talking about this still where they'll say, no, look, I I did. I played a role in this. I, I do yell at the kids. I do get frustrated. I do call my husband names. I hear that so often. And this is where I say, okay, at your core though, are you a person who just yells and goes around calling people names? And I will almost say unanimously, the answer is no. So you are doing that is in a reaction to not feeling heard or to feeling frustrated or to feeling like this is all on you or to feeling like you have been made to feel like this crazy person. And so that that is so hard to, I mean, it takes work to then start to unravel that because you are a good person but then you are put in a situation where it's your body keeping the score. I mean, when your body is starting to lash out verbally and emotionally in ways that you never have before, it's not because you're in a healthy relationship. It's because your body is saying, I don't know how else to be heard and something needs to change. So that narcissistic awareness grief really will start to hit somebody like a ton of bricks because they start to just look back and try to piece together what, what their relationship really was like or about. And uh, the person who sent the email said, it's something I've had to contend with for a few years. I'm grateful that he does put that in there because it takes a lot of time. The grief comes as dreams of what you thought your life would be get shattered with this new reality. And he says, I think there's a lot of value in addressing these emotions early on in the relationship with a narcissist as they go through this huge range of emotions when they start to wrap their mind around the new reality of what they're dealing with. And then he goes on to talk about, um, I, I have a couples communication course, and I talk about these four pillars of a connected conversation. And I'm going to hit this at a future date, but there, there are some frameworks of communication that I believe will help, in essence, this sounds so dramatic, but expose um, an unhealthy relationship. And especially when it comes to things like narcissism or borderline personality disorder. So I'm going to hit that on a future episode. But let me pull up an article. I'm going to go a little bit maybe meta, as the kids say, because Christine Hammond has some amazing um, podcasts about narcissism awareness grief. But I couldn't immediately find a really good uh, article about it. But I found one um, from a woman named Diane Metcalf. And uh, this is at her website, toolbox.dianemetcalf.com. And then it's uh, about narcissism awareness grief. And she is is talking about this term, narcissism awareness grief, that is coined by Christine Hammond, Dr. Christine Hammond. And she said, it's a real thing. And Diane Metcalf has a, a pretty amazing story shared where she says, I remember very clearly what it was like to experience it. And I'll link in the show notes to her website. And I think it would be very interesting or helpful for you to read what she went through as well. But I'll kind of skip down because she does lay out the narcissism awareness grief. And she says at some point during the years when you start to actively pursue healing and personal growth um, in someone that you have been in a relationship with now you recognize has most likely had this undiagnosed or untreated mental illness, maybe even a personality disorder like narcissism. 
you do feel validated because it does start to help you put pieces together, but it also then uh, brings on so many emotions. She said in her situation and realizing the impact of her own mother's narcissistic traits and what those did to her, the Diane Metcalf, she said, I felt a gamut of emotions, denial, sadness, rage, and everything in between and back. And she said that, you see, when we discover that the traumatic lifestyle that we endured as children has an actual name, or when you start to realize that the the traumatic relationship that you've been in has a name, it can be a huge relief at first. And those are the emails I'm getting right now is that it feels so good to be validated and to know that that I do, I see you and I hear you. But then it feels good to realize you're not alone. You're not crazy. Uh, she talks about how it's nice to know that you haven't just been imagining this. And that then now this narcissistic abuse is a real thing and you realize that you can deal and recover from it. And if we go back to the first episode I did where I have these five things that one can do to start to um, have a, a healthier interaction, I won't even say necessarily relationship, but interaction with the narcissist in their life. And that can be exhilarating, but here comes the grief. And if you're familiar with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief, there's a very clever acronym, DABDA. It's denial, anger, bargaining, uh, depression, and acceptance. And Christine Hammond adds a a sixth stage in this narcissism awareness grief. And uh, I remember one of the first podcasts I did on the virtual couch years ago was with uh, a a really fun um, girl named Aspen Drake who came on and she had had a podcast at that time talking about grief. And it was in honor of her mother who had passed away. But we talked about Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief and loss. And and it isn't necessarily an evidence-based model. Kubler-Ross had come up with this, I think, as some sort of project in her graduate or PhD work. And so I don't want you to feel like if you are not going through these, you are doing something wrong, but it's a really nice framework or template to help you work through this narcissistic awareness grief. And it doesn't necessarily have to be linear. I often say that you can jump back and forth between these stages as well. But uh, Diane Metcalf does a nice job laying out. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a lot from her post right now because I think that will really, really help. She says that the difference between the two grief models is that narcissism awareness grief has an additional and essential phase called rewriting. And she said that's where really the healing begins. So the first step in these six steps is denial. You know, after uh, reading and thinking and processing and talking about narcissism, she's like, you may begin to entertain the idea that in her scenario, it was her mother, but you might be entertaining the idea that your spouse may actually be on the narcissism spectrum. I like the way that she puts that. Because this might be an idea that you had not conceptualized before, and it might even be uncomfortable. And even if you are starting to believe, wow, no, I think this really is a thing, there can still be this sense of denial where that can make sense. And that's where I feel like I get people in my office and why I came up with those five things I talked about in episode one, because people want to say, no, I don't think it's narcissism because there's some good traits there too. There's some things that I think he understands or gets, and maybe it's me, maybe I'm crazy. So there is some denial. And so you you tend to minimize the impact that this relationship has had on you until you get to that point where you really feel like I can't do this anymore. And, and Diane says at that juncture, you begin to, but you begin to become aware of the scope of these narcissistic traits and how they affect the people in their life. And that can often then lead into anger because now it's like, wait a minute, this is a real thing. And as much as I want to give him in this scenario the benefit of the doubt, oh my goodness, I, I, now I'm kind of getting mad. And that anger can be intense. Because you might be now starting to be angry with yourself for not seeing this before now. Too often people go back and they remember, 
oh my gosh, I saw these signs. And when we were dating, you know, now we're 20 or 30 years into the marriage. Why? Why did I not follow my gut or my instinct? Why did why didn't anybody tell me? And so then people really, and you get angry at the people that that bought into this mask of the narcissist. And you just can feel this. Uh, I, well, here's what Diane said. She said, I think that what we're feeling in this stage is almost this kind of righteous indignation or this natural response to mistreatment or abuse. That if we witness an injustice when somebody's being mistreated or bullied or abused in any way, we, we of course, we feel this anger. But now we're feeling it for ourselves. And she said the anger can be huge, a huge motivator for change if we use it correctly. Now, I find in my practice that too often that anger can then turn into shame. And I, boy, I didn't even think about talking about this. Uh, we'll get to this again, future episode. But there's a big difference between guilt and shame. Guilt can feel like, oh, man, I, I, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Shame is that I'm a horrible person for, for doing this or allowing this to happen, for staying in this relationship. And I will tell you in my pornography recovery uh, work or group or um, that I do, I, I always, I always say that I've helped 15, 16, I don't know, 1,700 individuals now uh, turn away from pornography as a coping mechanism and, and that sort of thing. But I always say I'm over 1,700 in shame being a component of um, recovery. And I will bring that into this work as well. Shame does not help. It does nothing. When we tar- And unfortunately, a lot of times, and I feel like in this narcissistic awareness grief, that shame does become a component because the person feels like I must be a horrible person if I wasn't aware of this and I've allowed this stuff to happen to my kids. And I, you know, but we just have to have awareness and acceptance because, okay, it happened. Would it have been better if I would have realized this earlier, if I would have done something sooner? Sure. But I want you to feel the energy of even when I say that. Yeah, it would have. But we're here right now in the present and having this this knowledge allows you to now begin to slowly take action. So that is is significant. So I hope that people will get through that anger phase as quickly as possible, but it can be different for every person. After anger comes bargaining. You may wish that your childhood was different. You may wish that your relationship was different. You might feel bitterness and sadness and the unfairness of your circumstances. Um, Diane uh, in her blog is so good. She says, I remember wondering what my childhood would have been like if I would have had a mother who had been able to truly love and care for me more than she did her own image. Whew, that one hits, right? Uh, I think too often people in this bargaining, they'll think, ah, what would what would my life have looked like? What would my marriage have looked like if I would have truly had a, a connected marriage or if I had really felt heard? And that's hard. Or people then go into these, that, that again, we back into the shame creeps into bargaining as well, where we just say, why didn't I see this before? I've wasted my life listening to or believing my husband or or believing that I didn't have the right to interact with more friends or to share my thoughts with people, you know, that I've... I've been sequestered and I felt like that, that, I guess that was uh, I guess that was something that I brought on myself. So you'll feel robbed at times of your entire marriage or those sort of things and question the validity of your thoughts or feelings. And so what uh, what I feel is significant about bargaining and this isn't something that Diane had included in her blog. So I'm not sure if Christine really talks about this a lot, but when you just look at the true five stages of grief and loss, there's that bargaining piece is interesting. I, I often joke that the what we think about is that someone is on their deathbed and I think of every 80s sitcom where at some point then whoever the character was and somebody was going to potentially die and they said, okay, if you save them, I'll, I'll be a priest. You know, I'll, I will never say another bad word again. And then, you know, the person lives and then they say a bad word and then the laugh track kicks in and it cuts to commercial. But I feel like we, we often have that version of bargaining, but 
what the real version of bargaining is, is going back and saying, what if, what if I would have done this? So even in that same, just, just standard grief and loss, take away the narcissism component. Um, when someone, I mean, cause I work with people that have to deal with things like, uh, with people who've, um, who've died, who've committed suicide in their lives. And, and any of these where people, this bargaining, they go back and say, I should have done something. I could have helped. I could have done something. So that bargaining is such a normal part of this grieving process. So please give yourself grace. And, and there's, there needs to be some acceptance that, okay, it happened. But now, what can I do now? I have to be in the present and I can just start to eat up this information because I now can start to take action. And again, I say slowly take action because it's taken a while to get to this point. So it, you have to be fair to yourself. It's not a one-to-one time frame ratio, but you're going to start taking action just even in reading and starting to connect with others. The next phase is depression. And Diane said, when I understood that I couldn't help her mother change, or get her to see me differently, and I think you can fill in the blank with your spouse here, um, or change her vic- the, the, her mom's victim mentality, she said, I became very, very sad. And, and this is such an important part to recognize. Um, she said that when it began to dawn on her that her mom would never change, that she was incapable of change because she didn't think anything was wrong with her, she said that sadness turned into depression. She said she'd formed a rudimentary understanding that she's going to have to live with this new information. And so that can feel crushing, and it can feel... Like the weight of your, you know, your the key, your kids and your community and your own reputation and parents and who am I and all of those things can lead to this just deep feeling of depression. And so it's again, it's it's a normal. This is the part where I say, actually, if you didn't feel this, that would be odd. And and it's what separates you as you are working through this these stages from someone like a narcissist because you truly do feel, you truly do understand, you process information and emotion, and it hits you at a different level. I'll take a side note here that one of the, I don't want to say mistakes that people make, is that then people will assume that, oh my gosh, well, he must be feeling the same way. So I'm causing this rift in the relationship now as I pull back or as I as I find myself getting more angry. So that makes me feel bad because I'm sure he's going through it too. I'm sorry, but he's not. And I can give so much evidence and data and you name it of where he is going to do what is best for him in that moment. If it is to be sad, because that will get his needs met, then he'll be sad. If it's anger, because he's not sure what else to do and he's losing control, he'll be angry. And I think of situations where one just very um, wonderful woman I'm working with at one point, she had talked about feeling the sorrow and sadness and her husband was on the other end of the phone and he's just crying. And she's like, he just felt so sad. And in my mind, and I feel so dismissive with this, but it's, it's okay, well, that's what was going to get him out of the situation in that moment, or was going to get him to feel good about himself in that moment was that she was reacting to his sadness. And so, but then we had this gift handed to us where she found out later that then she had, uh, he, the narcissist in the scenario, had then gone from that phone call within a minute to a phone call with another person, an adult child in their family. And it, and it was as if nothing had ever happened. They were jovial and joking and everything was great. And so then when the, the mom, the woman I was working with, ended up talking with the adult child and the mom said, man, how was he? He was, oh, I felt so bad. He was so broken down. And then the adult child was able to say, oh, wow, he, he said everything was great. And that's because he can put on the mask that he needs in that moment. And that brings up something that I wanted, I may do an entire episode on this and I, and I feel like... I want you to adopt this uh, concept of, I call them the popcorn moments. 
And when you finally wake up to this narcissism and you get these uh, tools and talents I've talked about of raising your emotional baseline and getting your PhD in gaslighting and and getting out of unproductive conversations and, and learning to set boundaries and then realizing that there's nothing you're going to say or do to cause that aha moment for the narcissist, that when you get really good at just staying present, when the narcissist then starts to gaslight you and you don't take the bait, it is some of the most fascinating thing that you'll ever see. And I'll tell you a story about uh, that was shared with me of as, as, a, as a guy I was working with who had a narcissistic mom came to this awareness they, uh, the, the guy and his wife had gone to a movie and they brought home movie theater popcorn because it's amazing. Uh, that is one of my weaknesses. And yes, I have gone into movie theaters and just went and got popcorn. I'm not going to lie. So they had this, so I, I, so I feel this story I feel this guy. So they had their, their movie theater popcorn sitting on their counter, their, uh, an Island and their narcissistic mom had come over. This was in particular for Thanksgiving. And in that moment, um, it was really, it was really a, a kind of a, there was a whole side story here as well. The, the guy had had a birthday around that time at some point. And, uh, and so the, the mom had not called to say happy birthday. And so he had just not called her to say, Hey, it's my birthday. And so then she apparently had brought up to him that, uh, Hey, you, uh, you didn't call me on your birthday. And he, and he said, what? Um, I don't, uh, I don't think that's what the way it works. And then she just said, no, I, I was waiting for your call. And then he just said, so it's been, I don't know, 30, 40 years where it's always been where the parent calls the, the kid and says, happy birthday. And, and she wasn't going to take that. So then it was like, I, no, I, I mean, you, you are so busy and you're this. And so why would I, why would I call you? I mean, you know, you, you, you could have called me and then we could have had a wonderful conversation. So he was starting to be gaslit. And so then he said, I knew, I, I thought of the things that, uh, that we had talked about in therapy. And he said, I just stayed calm and I just stayed present. And I didn't say, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, you're right. I probably should have called. No, he didn't. He just sat there and he said, he looked over and he saw the popcorn. And so he just happened to grab a handful and then he started eating the popcorn and he watched the, the show of sorts where at first she was just trying to make him feel stupid. But then when he didn't say, yeah, you're right. And just give in. Then she got mad and she's like, I seriously can't believe that I'm over here on a holiday and, and this is how you're treating me, that you're going to argue with me about something as silly as this. And then again, he did not take the bait. And then she switched into then sadness of, oh my gosh, you know what? You're, you're right. I can't believe I did that. I mean, I am a, I, I am, I'm just a bad mom. I mean, I, I, can you believe I did that? And he said, he's seriously just eating his popcorn and watching the show and watched her go through the whole range of emotions until then finally, then she just said, you know what? I'm actually not feeling very good. I think I need to leave. And, and it was almost like, uh, and then the curtain closed and, you know, the end of the show. And so those popcorn moments, I feel like that's a very important thing to recognize that as you do start to um, find your own voice and, and use these tools that there you are going to be invalidated and that's going to be uncomfortable. The narcissist will often ramp up their behavior because that's the way they're trying to get control. And that as you don't react, that you will start to have these popcorn moments where you'll get to watch. And that's it can be validating when you really realize what's happening because you get to see that, oh man, they're willing to put on any mask to get out of the situation. And normally I give in to one of these masks. So that's that part of depression. It's normal. And, and if you need help, go see a therapist, start to talk to somebody about it. And sometimes even things like medication, meditation, um, exercise, these sort of things can really, really help. This is where I really want you to focus on your 
self-care, raise your emotional baseline because you need to be in a good place. It's normal to feel this feeling of depression, but you can start to do even the smallest of things with self-care to start to raise your emotional baseline to put you in a better spot to start doing this work that we've been talking about. So number five, the stage is called rewriting. And this is what Christine's added. It's exclusive to the narcissism awareness grief. And I will quote Diane, quoting Christine. How about that? She said, and it's where we can really do a lot of healing. She said this, Diane said, this stage is for taking this new understanding of narcissistic characteristics and applying it to our past. This is, uh, and I, I feel so bad if I, I now realize having a couple of podcasts and, and being interviewed on others. Well, that sounded narcissistic, right? In all my vast podcast uh, recordings and experiences, I sometimes lose track of where I've said what. So I really didn't mean it that way. But I, I talk about the movie The Sixth Sense and where you get to the end of the movie and then you realize Bruce Willis was dead. Sorry, spoiler alert. And then sometimes you want to go back through the whole movie and say, wait a minute, now I want to go, I want to watch the whole movie and see it that way again. And I feel like that's this part of rewriting. So again, she said that with her, when she said, when we begin to accept that our mother has narcissistic traits, or let's say your spouse does, we begin to understand how internalizing our mother's faulty perspective, or we will say our spouse's faulty perspective of ourselves has negatively impacted our lives. We start to, I hear this so often. The, the victim of the narcissism it starts to feel like, I don't even know who I am. I don't know, I, because I've been told who I am for so long, and what I've been told is not who I am. So Diane said, we realize that we must start to see things differently, and we begin to form new ideas about ourselves. And we learn to think in new ways. Thoughts like, my mother, we can fill in the, my spouse, wasn't capable of feeling maternal love or spousal love because of her condition. And it had nothing to do with me. And I am and I always have been lovable. And my mother wasn't capable of feeling empathy or my spouse wasn't capable of feeling empathy. And it wasn't that I didn't matter. I have always mattered. And when you are in situations with healthy relationships or healthy people, you will often experience the, oh my gosh, it felt so good to just talk to somebody and be heard and not to be told that I'm, I'm an idiot or what I do is so wrong. So yes, you have always mattered. You are always of worth and the one of there are so many things that the narcissism robs from their partner. And one of these is it takes away your gut instinct. It takes away you feeling like you can really trust yourself or rely on your own emotion. And I want you to get that back so desperately. And the only way to do that is to start to put distance and get out of that narcissistic bond or that trauma bond, because your body is already keeping the score. When you get around that person and you get in those triggering environments, your cortisol level increases, your stress level increases. And um, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk in the book, The Body Keeps the Score, says that the neurons that fire together fuse together. So if you have over time been in this narcissistic abusive relationship where you have constantly had to walk on eggshells or try to figure out um, how do I present things in this in this current situation to protect my kids, to protect myself, or to keep peace in the home, then you are going to walk into that home or you're going to hear him pull into the driveway and your cortisol levels are going to rise. They are going to rise and you are going to be operating from this baseline stress level that is not good. It's not healthy for you, even to the point of at times when people start to get away from the narcissistic abuse, that they they can't even sit with with just silence or things like that because it's almost like this withdrawal of cortisol. But we'll talk about that down the road as well. So you've always mattered. You do matter. And we need to start figuring out who you are. What what are your values? What matters to you? What are your God-given talents and gifts and abilities? And, and let's start to learn how to trust your gut. We're going to get back to that. And then the last 
phase is acceptance. As we work our way through the stages, she says the last piece comes pretty effortlessly. At some point, which can't be forced, I love that she said that, we finally accept our, she said, our mother's narcissism, our spouse's narcissism, or narcissistic traits as permanent. And we see that narcissism as a revelation of sorts. And there's almost this exciting feeling of freedom when we understand that we don't have the responsibility or the ability to change our our partner or our mother or whoever it is that's the narcissist in our lives. And we're finally able to let go of the effects of this dysfunctional relationship, whether it's your dysfunctional childhood or your dysfunctional marriage. And then when you get to that acceptance, there are some some seas being parted, some clouds that are, are moving away and, and the sun shining through and maybe even the unicorn jumping in the background because you start to learn how predictable the narcissist is. You start to learn that they truly do not know who you are and you do not have to even defend this version that they are projecting onto you because it will change in any given moment depending on what their mood is. Now you begin to learn to anticipate the behaviors and you can learn to uh, ways to interact in a way that will not cause you to feel crazy and you'll recognize the gaslighting. And we'll cover this down the road too, but there's a pretty fascinating shift that comes with acceptance. And when I talk about in my five ways to you know, interact with the narcissist, um, that number four is learn to set healthy boundaries. Number five is to realize there's nothing you will say or do that will cause the aha moment or the epiphany. But there's a really cool shift that starts to happen of where the things that you used to say to try and convince the narcissist, you now can start to work back into a boundary. And let me give you an example. When when she, let's say that the narcissistic husband would say something rude and uh, I don't know, and say, you know what, you just, you don't even care about the kids. And then where in the past say, okay, really? I mean, you know, let me point out all these ways to show you that I care for the kids. And then that was done in that I was trying to get him to understand, you know, to, to change him, to give him that aha moment. But when you come to this acceptance, now you have a couple of different options. One, you cannot even take the bait. You can ignore the narcissist. Let me give you a better example. This is a real life example. One where the narcissist is the female in the relationship. And now she's co-parenting with one of my clients and they have younger children. And so the, the narcissistic wife in this scenario or ex-wife has, has let the young kids know that someday I'll be able to tell you the truth. And thank goodness the young kids now have this great relationship with um, the, their dad and, and the new person in their life, the, the, the mom. And so the kids have come and said, hey, here's what, here's what mom's saying. And so in olden times, you know, under the, these five rules that I've talked about, the guy might have been saying, hey, look, you know, when you say that, then that, that isn't good for the kids. And I, I wish you wouldn't say that. And, and that's that I'm trying to get them to understand vibe, you know, that fifth rule that I talk about. But it will eventually shift into, no, it becomes a boundary. So if she's saying, oh, I'll tell them the truth, then I want the, the in this scenario, that narcissistic uh, wife or ex-wife, I want her spouse. Um, boy, I made this confusing. I hope you're following me. But then I want him now to be able to say, okay, um, if you say that you are going to tell them the truth, then I will also, by way of boundary, let let them know of the restraining order that was filed or the physical abuse that happened or the, and it's not done to quote, throw the ex-wife under the bus, but it's a calm, firm boundary now to say, that it's in essence, Christine Hammond does talk about training your narcissist. So it's, it's, if you do this, then here's the boundary. Here's what I will respond with. So I just want you to be aware. I'm not trying to change the behavior, but it's in, I'm, I'm in essence trying to, uh, to train the person that that is not going to be something that they will want to do, but we'll cover that down the road as well. So 
Boy, I wanted this one to be a quick episode. I released uh, the one last week on a Friday, and then over the weekend, the numbers went kind of nuts. And I just realized maybe that's a good time um, because maybe that's uh, the person can just have some time to themselves over the weekend, hear this. And so it uh, went a little bit longer than I'd anticipated, but I would love it if you would still continue to email with questions or gaslighting examples or um, anything, just comments overall. And because uh, I hear you, I see you. Uh, I'm so grateful for the response. Please share this. If you are in a narcissist, um, Facebook group or uh, online group of any kind or anything, I would love it if you would share this because I feel like just getting the word out and there's no scarcity mindset here. Um, as you can see, I referred to Diane Metcalf who talks about this and we talked about Christine Hammond who talks about this and I'm talking about this and in this world of understanding narcissism and in, in your own journey to wake up to narcissism, it you need all the data you can get. You need to hear it from me. You need to hear it from Diane, from Christine. You need to hear it from um, this, I've got this women's group that is amazing. Again, some people have asked if they, if, if they can join that, you send me an email. And uh, there's just so much work that needs to be done. And a huge part of that is just this gathering data and reading and understanding and learning. And that is so normal. And I'm grateful you're here. And cue the outro music, which is not here, but will be someday. I hope you have an amazing, amazing weekend. And, uh, and I appreciate you joining me. And I feel like I need to have some cool um, ending phrase of, and, and it, I feel like it would be lame to say, and enjoy waking up to narcissism. No, I'm sorry that you have to wake up to narcissism, but I'm grateful too that you are beginning to wake up to what narcissism is and, and its effects because you are on the, the path to healing, my friends. I promise you. All right, have a good weekend.